because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Today we've got a big show. It's going to begin with an interview of Wayne Christian, who's chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission. Now, some of you hearing that will know exactly what that is and why it's important. Some of you will be wondering, why do we have somebody here who's from the Railroad Commission? So as you'll see, the Railroad Commission is one of the main legal bodies covering oil and gas production in the U.S. It covers Texas, which is the major oil and gas state in the U.S., And so uh, Chairman Christian is going to be talking to me about a recent decision he made not to place a cap on domestic oil production, specifically Texas oil production. So that will be really interesting. I've already recorded the interview, so I can tell you it'll be interesting. And then after that, what I'm going to be doing is answering three really interesting listener questions that I've gotten as part of our Accelerator program. If you don't know about that program, the brief summary is that people who want to see these ideas about energy and human flourishing reach more people, they can help contribute to our research and development efforts and our promotional efforts by going to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. And those who contribute at the $250 level get to ask a question that I then answer on Power Hour or the Human Flourishing Project. So... Hope you enjoy both the interview and then the three questions. I'll be with you on the other side. I'm joined now by Wayne Christian, chairman of the Texas Railroad Commission. Wayne, welcome to Power Hour. Honored to be with you, Alex. Appreciate your work and have for years. Oh, well, well, uh, thank you very much. So as I told you before the show, the listeners to Power Hour, now the viewers of Power Hour, now that we're on video, Uh, have very different backgrounds. So some of them will know exactly who you are. Some of them will probably be happy with you. Some of them may not be happy uh, with you right now. But many of our viewers and listeners will have no idea who you are, and they've never heard of the Texas Railroad Commission. And what does the Texas Railroad Commission have to do with energy in general and oil in particular? So first, could you just tell us, what is the Texas Railroad Commission? The Texas Railroad Commission and Forbes magazine brags, I think, best with a statement they put a couple years back. The Texas Railroad Commission is the most respected regulatory agency for oil and gas on planet Earth. Uh, We basically regulate every mineral in Texas from the time it's in the ground until it goes to the refinery. So we do, uh, Texas itself is 40% of the national production of oil in the United States and and, and gas. So we are the largest producer in the United States, and the Railroad Commission totally regulates that. Um, got it. And so, and yeah, this has been a long-standing organization. And having been a student of the history of oil, the Texas Railroad Commission uh, factors in very prominently in the history of American oil. Particularly, you know, what happens when you have these explosions of production, and what do you do? And that, of course, relates to today's uh, situation. So, just give us some background. What What is the decision that you were tasked with making recently? Well, of course, we we're all aware of with the pandemic. And then, of course, the attack from Saudi Arabia and Russia, from OPEC, on the uh, shell play in the United States, which basically originated in Texas, uh, we were under attack from two different levels. And the bottom line is, of course, worldwide demand has decreased so significantly, people just aren't using oil and gas right now. And so what do we do about that? Uh, My big concern was, uh, of course, as the uh, regulator for oil and gas in the state of Texas, my concern was making sure that we lived through this downturn 
came out with as many people still able to work and be employed and producing as much as possible, not wasting the citizens of Texas natural resources. And so at first we were, we were challenged with, uh, there were a couple of companies and others joined with them that requested that we cap production, we uh, prorate it by 20%, just, just by, by rule, tell all the producers in Texas to shut down 20% of their production. And uh, we had, from that, I thought it was a significant enough problem. I called a special hearing by the Railroad Commission, and I think it was one of the first ever that we did video worldwide. We had 130 countries, had around 30,000 people that tuned in, lasted 10 and a half hours, 54 pre presenters of video and, and audio, and uh, so it was a long uh, quite exhausting. So was it on was it on both sides of the issue in terms of for capping and not? So just just so people know, the term pro rationing yeah. is sort of an ambiguous. We don't know, but but it's you know, as you said, it's 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 uh, capping. I'm just curious, just to play devil's advocate, and I'm I'm on your side on this one. But what's the case that people have made for capping it? Because a lot of people I really respect who have made the case for capping yeah. slash pro rationing. Well, their, their logic is if we decrease the amount of production, the price goes up, mm -hmm. uh, just like OPEC does. Now, the problem that I saw firsthand on this thing, um, I as a profession, I've been in the legislature about 15 years, and now as a railroad commissioner, a different, different seat, but I've looked back. My profession to fund my political life has been as an investment counselor, so I'm a, I'm a stockbroker to an extent. And I look there, and I see that back 50 years ago when we, we last did this uh, power that we were given at, at the Railroad Commission, we were about uh, all about 20, 25 percent of world production from Texas alone in oil production. And at this day and time, we were about 6 percent. So I couldn't look at this thing just logically and say, OK, if we kept 20 percent in Texas, that's going to be less than 1 percent of the worldwide production. I don't think we by ourselves would be a significant influence on world demand. But the the psychology of that many thought would do it. And each of the ones that presented to us said, if Texas does it, we can get other states to join us. Mm. So even the ones that came to us and the ones that were for this proration, uh, this capping of the 20%, said Texas shouldn't go it alone. So I, I valued and honored the testimony we heard on both sides of the issues that night. I immediately got on the phone with the uh, my friends at the Interstate Oil and Gas Compact Commission, of which you are a member, which is for 80-something years, the the oldest regulatory agency for the 31 states in the United States that produce oil and gas. And I got with several of those members, North Dakota, several of the states that are heavy producers, and they at that time were not willing to cap their production. And so I talked with the Minister of Energy in Canada, and we visited on several subjects, but they had already started from the sands in uh, in their part of the world up there. They come the sands where they produce a lot of their heavy yeah, the oil. oil sands. Yeah, the oil sands. And they... They had already done uh, the capping, so I found nobody was ready to jump on that wagon, and so we in Texans were all alone. So I immediately then thought, and I said, well, what do we need to do about this? Because we don't need to sit idly by and watch this go to par, to pass. So I called my good friend at uh, some of the associations, and uh, the all Texas Oil and Gas Association, the Texas Independent Royalty Producers, which ran everything from the Exxons, the BPs, down to the royalty owners associations across the state. And they all came together and I asked them to, instead of instead of we as government imposing what we think how to fix it, how about the, the men and women who for decades built the largest, most successful industry on planet Earth? You come up with what you think might 
do to help these smaller producers. And so I'm glad that our Blue Ribbon Task Force uh, came together and presented about 48 different steps that they think we can do to protect our own gas. One thing I think very interesting, when you heard the price plummeted back about a month ago or less than a month ago on oil uh, worldwide, the big story was we had nowhere to store the oil mm -hmm. and that the uh, uh, Oklahoma was going to run out of space. We had about 50 million barrels we could store and then we capped out and that would be a destructive. Our task force came back last week and reported they had through pipeline associations, through salt domes, using them through uh, additional space, a new uh, business down in Corpus Christi. They discovered about 70 to 80 billion barrels of space available just in Texas. So it's mm -hmm. amazing when you allow the free market to work and the industry to work and, and give them the challenge. They came back with 48 times the ideas that we had on just capping production. Yeah, I think that's that's really instructive that it's very often thought when people are predicting different kinds of catastrophes, whether economic or environmental, they don't allow for human ingenuity. They just assume that the way things appear right now is the only way they can be done versus no, people will come up with new resourceful solutions if they really need to. Now, you wrote an article in the Houston Chronicle, uh, which I, I thought was really good. And, and one thing you talked about was you didn't believe that Texas should be central planning the energy industry. Could you talk about that? Well, of course, it was back to the stats. You know, we're sitting here with 1% of the world market. So it's not right for Texas to be telling the rest of the world if we had the power to, perhaps, even if you wanted to. Though I think really that uh, the government, people, it sounds real simple, we're in a problem, whether it be the current uh, virus that we're, we're having in the United States. Always, it seems, government then comes in and answers all the questions. My philosophy has been, and, and my almost two decades in government has been, government never has the best answer to a situation, rarely has the best answer. Sometimes maybe militarily, yes, but as far as efficiency, really creating a problem, then I, do, I don't turn to government. And that's why I think my position is to make sure that government watches over the safety of the, the product, the lack of waste of the products that we've been given, our natural resources, but then the best ingenuity is what should be my responsibility to, to allow to answer any problem. And that's why I've been consistently saying we in government should make sure that we're sitting alongside. We watch the bad actors in any situation and implement rulings, regulations, keep the public safe, the environmental safety, flaring other issues we can look at. But in this particular instance, it's getting people back to work. It's moms and dads out there that don't have jobs that concern me the most. Yeah, I think I really wish that more public officials had this kind of attitude that there, you know, there's a difference between a government problem, which is which is a problem where force is required. So something like you get attacked by a foreign country, private oh. citizens can't rationally deal with that kind of thing. But if you're talking about well, an economic problem, that's something that free individuals need to resolve uh, on their own. And and it's it's a huge problem when people think, oh, there's a problem in the society the government needs to use force to dictate how it's going to be solved. Can you imagine that the government would have had any idea how to find this storage uh, capacity? Or, you know, no, what if the government props up inefficient arrangements for years and years and years? Is that really going to help anyone long term? I mean, so I, I just think it's it's I just want to point out it's very unusual that officials are saying, yeah, the government has a specific role. But most problems that come up in life, it's up to free people to solve on their own. Well, I think like you have so wisely shown us a lot, Alex, and you really have 
set the standard. It's not really hard to find the truth. It's really pretty simple. There's right ways and wrong ways. And to simply look at history, the proof of what has happened, what has worked, it's not hard to turn in a decision and go back to that's what's worked. And in the United States, we have become the most successful superpower on planet Earth. And it never has been the fault or the credit of the government for doing that. It's because we unleashed uh, the independent entrepreneur, companies, corporations, uh, people to get out here and to make the American dream happen. Government doesn't do that. Government just should protect that. And when you turn the ingenuity of the citizens loose in Texas, I guarantee you we're going to kick you know what all over the world. And Texas will be back. The United States. The history is 100% of the time, America has always come back better off from any problem we've ever faced, whether it be a world war, whether it be 9-11, whatever the situation, we've come back better, stronger, richer, both in America and in Texas. And I'll believe in that till the day I die. Yeah, I mean, I believe in that as long as the freedom is protected. I mean, like any, you know, no country is is uh, is exempt from what you might call natural law. Like if you restrict the freedom of individuals, you're going to restrict the creativity and success of individuals. There's no uh, there's no getting around that. And related to freedom, in your article toward the end, you talked about you have this blue ribbon commission, and I think you suggested that you're looking for other types of policies that can be helpful to the industry. And what I'm particularly interested in is what are ways in which we can liberate the industry further from irrational government restrictions, because if we can do that, then we can we can help the industry by making it freer versus by controlling the industry. So do you have any ideas going forward in terms of policy changes that would free the market more rather than less? Well, frankly, the industry as a whole, United States, worldwide, uh, and, and this is being very braggadocious, but the fact is the Railroad Commission of Texas and the state of Texas have been pretty well an example of uh, turning loose those independent folks that want to uh, waste their to risk their money, risk their livelihood, go out and drill, rough, get out there and, and try to put their fortune in the ground and develop. You know, the Railroad Commission of Texas and Texas historically has not regulated exploration, has not regulated people getting out there and, and trying to wildcat, trying to get them to discover things. Now, we immediately, the Railroad Commission st steps in. Once they discover it, then it's our place to regulate it, make sure it's safe, make sure it's it's uh, done correctly according to the laws and regulations that we've adopted through the years to protect the public and the natural resources. But we allow the exploration. We encourage people to come in. Drill, baby, drill is not an unknown statement in Texas. And that's a different attitude that many states have. Also, Texas has, by the way, is only one of two states that has their elected officials statewide, such as myself, that's elected to regulate oil and gas. Us and Oklahoma, the only two states. Every other state has a go the governor runs everything and the governor appoints the oil and gas regulator. Now, that may work if you have a good governor that loves oil and gas. But you take a state like, say, we, we share the largest discovery of oil in the history of the world. And a lot of people don't know this. Right now in, the, in West Texas, the Permian Basin, the projection is up, up to the projection up to nine times the resources we had before about 2016, we have it there, 230 billion barrels of oil have been discovered in West Texas. And New Mexico owns a good chunk of that. But New Mexico's leader is the governor. And their governor is uh, very much restrictive on oil and gas and is uh, more lenient toward the keep it in the ground folks. So their, their policies are very different from the state of Texas 
where we independently are elected to control the oil and gas industry are not dependent directly on a governor who may not be friendly. So we kept somewhat of an independence for our oil and gas industry to directly the population of the electorate. Yeah, I mean, what we're seeing in other states in New Mexico is a good example. I think Colorado is also a good example where you're just seeing increasingly the regulatory bodies are often viewed as we're trying to help people not use the uh, the resource. We're, we're trying to restrict it. And so the idea is that we're getting you uh, off of it versus no, we're, we're enforcing laws that help you do it uh, uh, safely. So I see... Uh, so just as we wrap up, I see a certain book on your shelf, the bright yeah. blue book that yeah. I recognize. I wrote that book uh, some some years ago. How'd you how'd you learn about that book? Well, I, I first found it on audible.com and listened to it. OK, audio. Oh, really? And it's great for people. I would encourage people to buy more case of fossil fuel. And if you're like me, do a lot of driving in the highway. It's a great, great audio book to get. But of course, uh, I found the book. It started telling me true stories about understanding the truth of oil and gas versus uh, the Green New Deal and the Green uh, Al Gore story. And you start, I started learning from you about these computer models that have been 100% wrong in all of history and uh, how we are seeing the same relevance, maybe even to the uh, pandemic we're experiencing right now. The models seem to keep rolling out wrong. And I've learned a lot, Alex, from you, from that book. And I started giving that book, in fact, I ordered a case of them from you. And uh, we started giving them to people that would visit us at the Railroad Commission so I could tell the industry. Quite challenging, what I found is the industry itself. There was an article about a month ago that said the 10 worst enemies to the oil and gas industry. Number one, the oil and gas industry. Uh, the oil and gas industry has set on their rear ends and have allowed the, uh, the opponents to, to, to express that oil and gas is something wrong, it's harmful to earth, that the industry is polluting, that oil and gas should go away. And people do not understand the truth. One, one neat fact from the EPA director of the United States right now, since 1970, every major uh, gas chemical as identified as dangerous by the EPA has been decreased by 70%, 73% since 1970. That means we, the industry itself, through technology. And fossil fuel use has increased during that period. Yes, population has increased by 60%, and it is uh, astronomical. I have the figures of how much more uh, uh, industrial use we have and population increase, and yet we've decreased that use, that uh, poisonous gas by the EPA director themselves. But And you also see, even when the uh, Keep It in the Ground group was on, on the political stage on CNN, the Democratic candidates, all of them for Keep It in the Ground, but they did admit that the United States was only 15% of world production and we weren't the problem. So the facts keep coming out conflicting, and you taught me how to look at those facts, because you taught me to look at science, look at facts, not look at hypotheses, and, uh, and I appreciate you, Alex, for what you've taught me as the Railroad Commission Chairman of the state of Texas made a great difference in how I've done my position, and I think it's benefited the citizens of Texas. Uh, great. Well, I yeah, when I was read, learning about the Railroad Commission, when I was learning the history of oil, you know, 12 years ago, when I first studied it, I, I definitely didn't expect that the chairman of the commission would have the moral case for fossil fuel, that I, would, I, not that that existed, but would have, you know, a book of my ideas uh, on the bookshelf. And just one thing I want to highlight, you mentioned in terms of the oil and gas industry and, and does it always act in its own interests in the interests of energy freedom. I just want to highlight that this year is such a crucial year 
because we have people trying to outlaw that industry through a Green New Deal, but also through national bans on fracking and opposition to infrastructure. And it's such a difficult thing for the industry, I think, because they're suffering in such an immediate way financially. But one thing I, I think is important to stress is the anti-fossil fuel movement is not taking a vacation uh, because of the virus. I mean, they, they, they are trying to use the virus in order to justify the Green New Deal. So I just advise everyone in the industry, like, this, you know, we really have to, those of us who believe in what you do, like we really have to folk double down on telling the truth. And one thing that I've been doing is I've been trying to help any candidates on a really a volunteer basis, helping candidates with their messaging. So if, you know, anyone is interested in that, they can always email me at alex at alexepstein.com if anyone is a candidate or on a campaign. And we can, if you're pro-energy, pro-freedom, we want to help you out because we realize it's it's a low resource time for a lot of people who would traditionally provide that. But we have a lot of information and the American public needs to know that. And it's such an important time. I was looking just, I just Googled the information on an interview I did with NBC a couple of weeks ago. And for all those people saying we need to use this as an opportunity to replace fossil fuel, and you've heard that, as you mentioned earlier. Mm -hmm. but when you look, there's about one million electric cars out there on the roads in the United States. There are 285 million diesel and gasoline cars. So, I mean, and, and by the way, the uh, electric cars get most of their fuel, 98% of it, from either fossil fuels or nuclear energy, 96%. Wind and solar only do about 6% of the total production of electricity in the United States. So if you shut down fossil fuels, you'll have blackouts in every major city and minor city just even for those that are not maybe friendly to fossil fuels, it is impractical, it is heinously harmful for us to go down the road of just shutting down fossil fuel at this time. And as you mentioned, it's a danger that they're trying to promote from the national level. Yeah, so it's just really important for people uh, to be here. I think it's a little over over 6% now, but one of the points about solar and wind is they are dependent sources of electricity. So it's not a self-sufficient uh, source like a hydro plant or a nuclear plant. It's something that totally depends on fossil fuels or nuclear to back it up basically 100% uh, of the time. So if we're talking about relying on unreliables, that's not something that can scale and it's not yep. something we want to bet our future on. Something you taught me is the capacity they keep advertising with these uh, mm. windmills and solar panels. And this morning I noticed in Texas where they're talking about replacing about uh, uh, 5,500 megawatts of, of solar energy and 83 megawatts of natural gas. They say that wind and solar folks will produce 23,000 megawatts of new generating capacity. Mm -hmm. And as you and I are aware, capacity is about what one fourth you ever get of real actual production because the wind doesn't blow, the sun doesn't shine 24 hours a day, which is what capacity means. And just for people to learn the misnomenclature of how they present this in the media is quite frightening. Yeah, capacity. There, there are a bunch of watchwords you should look out for. And as soon as somebody says capacity, uh, what because capacity means it's used with solar and wind, it's meant to it basically means momentary maximum. So the, yeah. the highest moment possible, that's the capacity. And that would be accurate if you could control the energy and put it that way most of the time, like a nuclear plant. Nuclear plant's capacity, its momentary maximum is very close to its normal use. But if it's an intermittent source that doesn't even work a huge percentage of the time, then often its actual capacity is zero. So I'm glad, I'm glad you picked that one up. There are a lot of uh, these kinds of energy fallacies. Well, uh, thanks so much, uh, Wayne. Any final messages you want to give to the audience? Well, I just think the history of oil and gas in the United States, and especially Texas, is valuable. 
And we need to understand the truth of the past. You go back to World War One. It was a field in Ranger, Texas, that produced what the Europeans called a wave of Texas oil that helped win World War One. World War II, Winston Churchill, after World War II, which is the greatest generation from which we developed the world's first superpower in the United States, the greatest generation. And in that, Winston Churchill said the war was won on a sea of East Texas oil from deep East Texas. And what folks need to realize now is we all of a sudden are, have been given for the third time the largest discovery of oil in the history of the world, potentially 230 billion barrels in West Texas. And I think it's a national defense, national concern, because if we take advantage of that and don't allow the false truth and false narrative you have taught us so well to, to be in control, we have a chance to keep our young men and women from ever having to go overseas to the Persian Gulf to defend our access to oil. And that is so important right now that people, I think, aren't understanding how important fighting this new Green Deal really is. Yeah, that's a whole a whole other discussion in terms of the foreign policy, which I, I want to talk about sometime on the show. So uh, thanks so much, Chairman Christian. Uh, thanks for coming on and, and thanks for making the free market decision. Thank you, sir. Thanks again to Chairman Wayne Christian for coming on the program and also for his very nice comments about my work, especially the moral case for fossil fuels. Okay, next up, I had told you we were going to have some listener questions, and we will, but there's one more topic that I want to cover, which is a recent open letter that was co-signed by some 200 people in the French newspaper Le Monde, and the vast majority of them, I think, looking through the list, were different kinds of celebrities, so people in the arts. And so I decided to respond to this on Twitter, and I want to share a little bit about why I responded and also uh, what, I, what I said. So the overall idea of the letter was that we need a radical transformation post-COVID-19. So here, first I'll read you the letter, which is pretty brief and then I'll give you my specific uh, comments on it. And I'll read it pretty quickly, and then I'll, I'm going to highlight the things that I think are most important uh, afterward. The COVID-19 pandemic is a tragedy. The crisis is, however, inviting us to examine what is essential. And what we see is simple adjustments are not enough. The problem is systemic. The ongoing ecological catastrophe is a meta-crisis. The massive extinction of life on Earth is no longer in doubt, and all indicators point to a direct existential threat. Unlike a pandemic, however severe, a global ecological collapse will have immeasurable consequences. We therefore solemnly call upon leaders and all of us as citizens to leave behind the unsustainable logic that still prevails and to take a profound overhaul of, to undertake rather, a profound overhaul of our goals, values, and economies. The pursuit of consumerism and an obsession with productivity have led us to deny the value of life itself, that of plants, that of animals, and that of a great number of human beings. Pollution, climate change, and the destruction of our remaining natural zones has brought the world to a breaking point. For these reasons, along with the urgency of renewing with the politics of social equity, we believe it is unthinkable to go back to normal. The radical transformation we need at all levels demands boldness and courage. It will not take place without a massive and determined commitment. We must act now. It is as much a matter of survival as of dignity and coherence. 
So now here's what I focused on in my responses. And by the way, before I get into that, just one reason why I res I'm responding to a celebrity letter. There were a bunch of academics who signed on to it, but uh, celebrity letters are often very good at capturing a prevailing narrative. And it's particularly true if it's a moral narrative, a narrative about right and wrong. So narrative means a story about the choices we face going forward. And when celebrities get together to do this, it usually means that there's a narrative that's very established in the culture. And in this case, it's established, but I think it's a very wrong narrative. The overall narrative being that we have destroyed our planet and we need, uh, mostly because we've had political freedom. And so we need a radical reduction of political freedom to save our planet. So here's what I chose to focus on. So this is my first tweet. I did uh, four, uh, four tweets or four tweets slash Twitter threads, so combinations of tweets. A letter from Madonna and Jane Fonda I focus on just because those are two of the most famous people and they both have Twitter handles. Robert De Niro was also one, unfortunately. A lot of good actors I like. Uh, Juliette Binoche, I think, was one of the leaders and she was in the fantastic movie Chocolat. So it's, it's always sad to see re really talented people, for the most part, uh, saying things that are, are, I think, really destructive. And, and often I don't think they know, but in part because there's an unchallenged moral narrative they feel as idealists like, well, there's no negative in getting on board with something like this. Whereas I think what, what they're on board with, knowingly or not, is incredibly destructive. So my first tweet, a letter from Madonna, Jane Fonda, and other celebrities, celebs just for, for brevity, because you only have so many characters, says it's, quote, unthinkable to, quote, go back to normal, unquote, unquote, and condemns our, quote, obsession with productivity, unquote. And then I write, in 1980, 42% of humans lived on less than $2 a day, thanks to the normal, i.e. free world's, quote, obsession with productivity, it's now 10%. So just to elaborate on this a little bit, I found it very, very revealing that obsession with productivity was under attack because obsession with productivity, that, that can have negative senses in the sense of, you can think of an individual as they're so obsessed with productivity but they're not, they're doing it at the expense of their overall happiness, their, their, what you could call their flourishing, their families. You could think of these situations. But overall, the problem historically is that we're not nearly productive enough. Nature doesn't give us ample free nourishment, and nature does give us a lot of threats. So as human beings, what we have to be really good at is producing values we need to flourish to nourish us and to protect us from nature, as well as to fulfill us, things like uh, leisure activities. And up until you know, very recently, historically, we were very unproductive. And even, as I said, in 1980, the year I was born, 42% of people lived on less than $2 a day. That means they were super, the average person was super unproductive. And now it's less than 10%. And that's an incredible thing. So when people talk about, oh, normal is bad, what they mean is, what, what, what they mean, whether they know it or not, is that our level of productivity is bad and the progress in our level of productivity, which is still ongoing, and I mean, it's, I think it's paused or even re regressed a little bit in the current crisis, but in general, it's been ongoing. They're saying that's not the level and the progress are both bad. They'd call it unsustainable. And, and I think this poverty statistic puts into perspective why it's good and it's progressive. It's part of 
an improvement of the world. And if you want more on the idea of being progressive and how we can create more and more resources out of the virtually unlimited raw matter and energy in nature, see my podcast last week on the five things planet of the humans gets totally wrong, where I talked about this sustainability idea a lot. Next one. The pursuit of consumerism must stop, Madonna, Jane Fonda, and other celebrities tell us. But without consumerism, productive people enjoying free time and abundant resources, a modern arts slash entertainment industry, celebrities' jobs, wouldn't exist. So in this one, I'm defending the idea of consumerism or the pursuit of consumerism. Now, as with productivity, and maybe even more so with productivity, there's a sense in which people can can um, sort of consume in an irrational way. So certainly people can consume in a way that doesn't give them fulfillment. But what I try to get at in this tweet is, what is the heart of consumerism? It's really that you're productive enough so that you have produced free time and you've produced abundant resources that you can utilize during that time. And so you could think of, well, the pursuit of consumerism, that's like, well, you have time and ability to go somewhere like the Grand Canyon and enjoy that. If you're thinking of things like enjoying nature, you think of your, you've produced the time and ability to spend quality time with your family, or even think we've produced the ability uh, to deal with you know, serious diseases, which in part, free, I mean, which that can free up decades of your life if it was a disease that could kill you. So uh, there, there's just this tendency to, to, Take, a, take an aspect or a misuse of something like consumption and then to use it to damn the whole thing. And that's why I think it's really important to talk about what is the core of this and why that's a good thing. And yeah, if people are consuming in a way that's irrational, that just means you should encourage them to consume more rationally, but you shouldn't discourage them from producing and from consuming. That's a really anti-human, you know, anti anti-happiness perspective. The next one. So I have, uh, this is the second to last. I agree with Madonna, Jane Fonda, and other celebrities that today's crisis is, quote, inviting us to examine what is essential, unquote. The most essential value it should highlight is freedom. Their letter does not mention freedom once and consists mostly of veiled calls to abolish freedom. And then I continue in the thread. Expressions like radical transformation, massive and determined commitment, profound overhaul of our goals, values, and economies can only mean forcibly preventing individuals around the globe from their chosen pursuit of consumerism, in quotes, and obsession with productivity, in quotes. Whenever people are calling for radical transformation, there's always the question of how is that going to come about? Are they really just giving you reasons as an individual, like saying, well, you should buy an Apple computer instead of a Microsoft computer? Um, is that what they're doing? Or are they really calling for force? And here it's clearly calling for force because the whole th they know that left free human beings are going to focus on being productive and they are going to focus on being consumers. Now you can, as I said before, you can try to give people rational guidance about that, but that's totally different than saying it's fundamentally wrong and thus we need to force you to do something else. And the reason that I highlighted freedom is that if you look at the response to this coronavirus, so much of what has happened is there's a response that places zero value on human freedom. 
that's not to say there shouldn't be a response and even the government should have a role. But I think the government should think of itself as our goal is to protect people's freedom. So one role I've talked about it has in infectious disease is when people are demonstrably dangerous, as in they're carrying it, uh, they're contagious, particularly if they could you know, be, they're a super spreader or something like that. There's a role for government in, in having those people isolate in one form or another, you know, as only as long as they're actually a demonstrable danger to others. But when it's doing that, it's saying we value freedom. This person is interfering with other people's freedom temporarily by being a demonstrable danger, so they have to isolate. But it's saying our goal is to protect freedom. And what we're seeing today is that the whole response has placed zero value on freedom and placed and, and given the government basically unlimited power as long as it says it's, quote, saving our lives. And I think you can see just the mass destruction that's occurring in every aspect of people's lives. And as I argued on last week's show with Daniel Gorbatenko, even in our ability to protect ourselves from this disease, the government lockdowns have made it harder for us by forcing us inside, which exposes us to lower doses, uh, higher doses rather for around infectious people. And then it encourages us to go in uh, poorly ventilated areas usually and mix with people if it's a, quote, essential, like a grocery store, and then to come back and then be inside with other people. And on top of that, to stay inside all the time and really, I mean, more or less encouraging us to eat junk food in terms of just focusing so much on takeout. And so just increased doses, lowered immunity, and broadly just encouraging us not to think about how to deal with this rationally. So freedom should be, that should be the value people are so focused on right now. And, and these guys are not focused on it at all. And their whole, their whole focus is we need to restrict freedom much more. They're seeing the response and they're saying, yeah, people aren't producing and consuming as much. That's great. But how do we impose a much greater restriction on freedom uh, long-term? Final uh, thread, maybe the most revealing sentence from the celebrity open letter on COVID-19. Unlike a pandemic, however severe, a global ecological collapse will have immeasurable consequences. So my response to that is, so you wouldn't consider it immeasurable consequences if billions of humans died? By what standard? Whether these celebrities know it or not, their standard of, of evaluating Earth is not human flourishing, it's unchanged nature. They don't want an Earth that's as human-friendly as possible. They want an Earth that's as human-free as possible. And I think that is really, uh, you know, it's just such an important issue. How are you evaluating the earth? And just the idea that you can say a pandemic, however severe, and you don't consider that to have immeasurable consequence, like what, what could be worse than an earth that's uninhabitable for humans? Obviously, you're not valuing the humans on the earth. You're really saying the humans are, are an obstacle to the, you know, to the earth as you see it, which is really focused on on the non-human. So it's, it's such an anti-human perspective. Now their rationalization is usually, well, like we depend on everything else and it's, it, you know, it's a fragile planet and a delicate nurture, but it's so revealing that they say, yeah, if, if we wouldn't consider that bad an effect, if there were almost an infinite uh, pandemic, what's really bad is changing the rest of nature. And that shows the rest of nature is the priority, not its impact on human beings, and it's partially why they're so indifferent to the fact that, in general, we've changed the rest of nature in a way that's really good for human beings. Okay, so that is the response to the celebrity letter. Now, we're going to move on to uh, some questions from listeners. 
So from Todd, maybe you have covered this before, but my question is, why do people still believe the doomsayers on the environment when every prediction of global disaster that they have ever made has been wrong? I like this question uh, a lot. So let's jump into it. It's it's this, But I just say, this is a real question. We have, as I talk about in Moral Case for Fossil Fuels and in the new version, I'll talk about it more. There's just this track record of saying, we're going to run out of resources. The, you know, the world is going to end. We got to radically reduce fossil fuel use. That doesn't happen. We're going to run out of fossil fuels. The world is going to end. We got to radically reduce fossil fuels. You know, we're going to starve. Uh, we're going to pollute so much that the world is going to be unbreathable. We're going to cause catastrophic global cooling. And then, of course, catastrophic global warming. And sometimes people think, oh, there's been vindication, but there hasn't been catastrophic global warming. And if you look at the predictions that were publicized 30 years ago, they're on the order of, yeah, it's going to be five degrees warmer by now. And hundreds of millions will have died by now. So they've just been, I mean, to say it's an exaggeration doesn't capture. It's just been totally wrong. It has been the opposite of right in terms of more people have been living, including, as I've documented a bunch of times, there are fewer climate-related deaths than ever. So there's the, Todd's question is a really good one. Why do people still believe the doomsayers? And my answer is that it comes down to two things. One is method, and the other is framework. And under framework, I include assumptions and values, which I'll get into in a minute. So, but we're going to talk about, so at the first level, I want to talk about is the level of method because I think this is the this is a level that's more apparent and it can it can then help us understand how framework operates. So the method is asking what are their minds doing incorrectly? Like what are the minds of the and and let's call them the designated environmental experts. So the people like Paul Ehrlich, John Holdren, Bill McKibben, the public relations department of the United Nations, these people who've made these catastrophist predictions and been totally wrong and still hold, they're still designated as, oh, well, these are the environmental experts. When there's anything involving our environment, these are the people to listen to. They'll tell us what's going to happen and what to do about it, usually how to avoid it. And the common thread, I think, if you look at the method throughout the history, and, and again, chapter one of the moral case for fossil fuels, covers this pretty well. The two things that they're doing all the time is they're dramatically overestimating the negative impacts of, say, fossil fuel use, and then they're dramatically underestimating the benefits. So they're dramatically overestimating the negative impacts, and I think of those as the side effects of fossil fuel use, and then they're dramatically underestimating the benefits. So with the negatives, you can think of something like pollution even, where in the 70s, you had pollution that we'd consider pretty significant, but life overall was still getting way better. And the predictions were, well, this is going to get worse and worse, and we won't be able to see the sun and this kind of thing. So it's just totally overwrought and no respect whatsoever for how ingenuity and technology can actually make the pollution a lot less, even while we get increased energy production from fossil fuels. So that's, and that's an example of overestimating a negative impact or a side effect. And certainly with the climate issue, where there have been estimates of oh, it's going to warm many degrees and it's going to go out of control and we're not going to be able to cope with it. And John Holdren's prediction, uh, President Obama's former science advisor, that a billion people would die by the year 2020 of CO2-related famine. And meanwhile, we have billions of people 
who are alive because of fossil fuel use. So that's a, that's an example of of completely overestimating the negatives, if any. And so he's not looking at that, and he's underestimating the benefits. So one benefit he's underestimating is the global greening benefit, the fact that CO2 is plant food, and so that contributes to crop growth. So that's going to counter, I mean, that's counter starvation. But the main thing he's underestimating is billions of people having low-cost, reliable uh, energy from fossil fuels that they wouldn't have been able to get at nearly that low cost from any other source over the past several decades. And that's enabling us to have all these amazing agricultural machines that allow, as I, I like to talk about, one individual to reap enough wheat in a day to make 500,000 loaves of bread. So you're talking about thousandfold or so increases in how much work we can do in a given amount of time. So this is the pattern. They're dramatically overestimating the negative impacts and dramatically underestimating the benefits. So they'll see catastrophe, they'll expect catastrophe, even when they have every reason to expect a net improvement. And what happens is a net improvement, and yet we keep believing them. And so then the question is, so that's that's the method, that's pretty straightforward. But then the question is, why are they doing that? And one aspect of that question is, it's common knowledge that you need to carefully weigh positives and negatives. So if you, um, if you know, if if you think about, like you talk to Bill McKibben or Paul Ehrlich, and you said, hey, you know, if you're deciding what to eat for Thanksgiving, you need to carefully weigh the positives and the negatives of each option. They would say, oh my gosh, I've never heard that idea. What a what a crazy idea. Or if you said, well, you know, when you're if you're considering this medication, you have to carefully weigh the positives and the negatives. They wouldn't say, oh my gosh, what a are you a doctor? They'd say, oh well, yeah, that's common sense. So why aren't they applying common sense in practice? Given that these are people who are very smart. And they also have exposure to a lot of, of facts. So what's, what's going on? So one answer is assumptions. And this is when, when I talk about framework, I think of the two components of, of a framework. So a framework is a starting structure. It's where your thinking starts. I think of two of the key components are your assumptions. So how you think the world works. And then the, your values, what you think our goals should be in life. What, what should we aim for? What do you think is good? And so with assumptions, what you can notice is that there's always an assumption that there will be a catastrophe, that that and particularly that human impact on the planet will lead to catastrophe. So for example, we put more CO2 in the atmosphere, it goes from 0.03% of the atmosphere to 0.04% of the atmosphere. Not just it's going to have an impact, not just that, well, maybe we have to adapt somehow, or even it's a net negative, there's some undesirable things. No, but it's a catastrophe. It totally overwhelms us. That's based on certain assumptions. And um, I'll get to uh, I'll get to value, I'll get to values in a second, but let me just go a little bit more into assumptions that I'm going to cover this again in some more depth on the next question, actually. But just to preview it. If you look at the assumptions, there's this overall assumption that human impact on nature or significant human impact on nature will be catastrophic. And a lot of that is what I call the perfect planet premise, the idea that the planet is naturally stable, naturally safe, and naturally sufficient. So by sufficient, I mean it gives us enough to nourish us. And if you have this view of the planet, then what you're going to expect is that human impact is going to destabilize it and then it's going to make it dangerous 
and deficient. Versus the reality is that the planet is naturally imperfect from a human perspective. So it's naturally, it's not, it's not stable, it's dynamic, it's dangerous and deficient. And what human beings need to do is we need to massively impact it intelligently to transform it into a, you know, a far more safe and sufficient place. And we experience it as stable, not that it's actually stable, but we experience it as stable because our productive ability allows us to produce nourishment and allows us to produce safety. So yeah, we experience it as, oh yeah, it's, it's a pretty safe place to live. But what people don't realize is that's that's a consequence of our productive ability, and then our productive ability is a consequence of our ability to use machine power, and that's a consequence of our ability to produce energy at low cost for billions of people in a reliable way. So that whole, this assumption that significant impact is going to lead to catastrophe and the whole perfect planet premise behind it, and you can also think of it as it includes the view that human beings are parasite polluters. So all we do is we basically steal from nature and then we we muck it up, we make it dirty versus no, we're producers. We create new value. We take things that aren't valuable and then we we rearrange them to make them valuable. So we do that and we improve. We take things that are dangerous and dirty and we make them safe and clean. Now, of course, we can make things worse, but our general nature is as producer uh, improvers. And then the other point of framework, so it's that one point is if you have this view that human impact is invariably self-destructive, then you're going to expect catastrophe. Um, and so that explains a lot. But then you you notice, uh, you know, that it doesn't quite explain everything. And in particular, what it really doesn't explain is why there's such a negative view of the planet right now and throughout history. So if they had the following view, if they said, yes, today's planet is amazing. It's the best planet that's ever existed, but it has the seeds of its own destruction in it. That would at least be a plausible view. It would say, because they would acknowledge, yeah, of course the earth is a better place to live than it's ever been. We've been incredibly productive. We've made it so nourishing. We've made it so safe. It's so full of opportunity. Like, this is great. I wish we could sustain it forever. I wish we could improve it. But unfortunately, there's a fatal flaw. Like, that would be one kind of attitude. But if you notice, the doomsayers do not have that attitude at all. There's no acknowledgement that the planet has improved. There's no acknowledgement that the planet was imperfect and that we've dramatically improved it. And so it's, there's something that's driving this that's not just a negative expectation about the future, there's a value thing where they don't value the present. And so why don't they value the present? It's not just that they're afraid about the future for the reasons I just explained. And ultimately, the only answer can be they're measuring value in a different way. The example I like to give as an analogy, it's, it's, it's even closer than an analogy, is animal testing. When people look at animal testing and they say, this is a horrible like I'm against animal testing. It's a fact that animal testing has led to dramatic advances in medicine. Now you could say, well, maybe in the future it won't be necessary. You can say sometimes maybe it wasn't necessary. But look, human beings have used animal testing as part of many, many breakthroughs. And yet people say animal testing is bad. Why do they say it's bad? Well, because they're not placing primary value on the humans. They're saying, no, we value the animals above the lives that would be saved by testing on them. And so what's going on is that's not a new scientific view. 
that's a moral view. That's saying my standard of evaluating animal testing is not humans or human flourishing. It's the animals. Or you could say maybe it's something like, uh, I think all living things are equal. But in any case, it's not valuing human flourishing as your standard. And that is, so that's why even when there are beneficial outcomes and fossil fuels have so many beneficial outcomes today and historically, they're still viewed as catastrophic because if you're viewing the earth, so in the, the analogy to animal testing is, or to the value animals is really valuing unchanged nature. So if you're saying, well, unchanged nature is the standard, yeah, then what human beings have done is already a catastrophe because we've changed nature a lot. But from a human flourishing perspective, it's the opposite of a catastrophe. It's great because we've changed nature to be a much better place for human beings to live. So your evaluation of whether the earth, whether human impact on the earth has been amazing or terrible or somewhere in between, so much of that is based on your standard. That's why all these people can see all the ways in which human life has improved, all the ways in which earth has become more human friendly, and they still view it as, yeah, we screwed it up. But we didn't screw it up for humans. So we had to screw it up by this standard of unchanged nature, which basically just means everything but humans is what is what matters. Okay, next question from Andrew. I put nothing past the misrepresentations of the environmentalists. I feel, and I think he means like leaders of the modern environmental movement, not just people who would consider themselves environmentalists. I feel compelled to question the accuracy of the fundamental claims involved in any issue on which the environmentalists are sounding the alarms related to the last question. I know your position is that the claims of catastrophic effects from increased CO2 emissions are false. I would like to ask your position on whether society should be concerned about and working to reduce such emissions at all. Good question. I understand there are some positive effects as well, and I'd like to hear your view on what are the essential positive and negative effects to be considered. Ultimately, my question is, according to a standard of human flourishing, do you consider the effects of an increase in CO2 emissions to be A, net negative, though not catastrophic, B, neutral, or C, net positive? I realize that considering the magnitude of an increase may be necessary to answer the question. I'm basically interested in whatever the magnitude is that's being used by the experts who are raising the concerns, which seems to be based on the amount uh, of emissions have already increased from some point in the past to the present, and the amount emissions are expected to increase from the present to some projected future date. Of course, I leave it to you to determine what is the best approach. This is a very exact uh, question, which I like. Um, let's see. So, first of all, why is Andrew right, I think, to be skeptical of anything leading environmentalists say? And one reason is that the, the broad reason that I discussed in answer to Todd's question, which is that there's a whole history of environmental leaders, designated environmental experts making these very wrong catastrophe predictions, particularly about fossil fuels, but more broadly about industrial civilization, high productivity uh, civilization, high impact civilization, you can think of it as. Uh, and then, uh, you know, behind that, as I discussed, there's the perfect planet premise. So this is an assumption that the planet is stable, safe, and sufficient, and that leads to the expectation that human impact on the planet will be catastrophic. And then two, sorry, it's showing up as one on the screen, 
the unchanged nature standard. So it regards impacts as catastrophic, even when they're beneficial, let alone neutral or mild. So our overall impact on the earth is viewed as catastrophic, viewed as bad, even though it's so good for human beings, because they're not evaluating the earth by how good is it for human beings, but rather how little have we changed it. So he asked, Andrew asks, I would like to ask your position on whether society should be concerned about and working to reduce such emissions at all. So let's start off with concerned about. I would say I definitely agree with having what I could call initial concern. So initial concern means there's something here that may be concerning that I want to study. And if you know, well, CO2 is a greenhouse gas, technically an infrared absorber, and so it temporarily, in effect, traps. Uh, it, you know, the short version is uh, temporarily traps heat, so it basically slows the escape uh, of certain kinds of heat from the atmosphere, and so that has a warming influence. And so you should be interested, at least, in hey, what happens when we add more of that CO2 when we increase the percentage from about 0.03% of the atmosphere to 0.04% of the atmosphere. That's a legitimate thing. And even though those numbers sound low, you that's, you know, it's in, if you look at the, the exact number, it's something like 0.027% to 0.041%. It's almost a 50% increase in the quantity of it. So that is, that's something to actually even be concerned about in the sense, at least, hey, I want to see what this does. And maybe there's something uh, negative here. Now, I think that once you study it, what I would call informed concern, it's more in the category of this is something that's pretty mild in the scheme of things for reasons I'll give. And you've probably heard me talk about this before and and something to monitor. So to see, okay, as we learn more about this, as we learn more about the dynamics of it, is there significant reason to be concerned? And it may not even be global concern, but it may be, well, in certain areas, there's a concern. So it's something to monitor. But as a, as the question stated, you know, I don't think anywhere near catastrophic. So then there's this question of, is it, you know, is it even a net negative? And that partially raises this issue of working to reduce. So should society be working to reduce? And I'm going to say, I don't think society should in the form of government, but I think it's legitimate for private entities to focus on it. Although as I'm going to argue, it's mostly in the context of just trying to find better ways of producing energy. There are other ways to produce energy besides using hydrocarbon atoms, which is what fossil fuels are made of. And now hydrocarbon atoms are the best, are involved in the best processes that we have for most people, for most purposes. But, you know, if you're looking for alternatives just to be better in some dimension over time, those are going to involve low CO2 emissions just by the nature of them. So particularly nuclear is the one I think is most promising. But in general, yeah, we're going to look for ways of producing energy that don't emit CO2. But that's primarily because you're focused on the value of a superior method or process of producing energy, not that you're looking to avoid CO2. So the main, you know, the main point of my work on this is that it's not about the CO2, because the the thing that matters most is the energy that comes with the CO2. So I put it here as the far greater ability to use energy that comes along with the CO2 emissions is a huge net benefit. And I think Andrew knows that's my point, but I want that's my overall point, but I want to stress that that it's yeah, the by using by emitting CO2, we're it's a 
the process that involves emitting CO2 is the process of producing energy for billions of people at lower cost in most cases than they could get it uh, from any other source. And so it's a matter of people having a lot more energy if they're free to use fossil fuels versus having a lot less energy if they're not. And I'm saying that energy is so valuable that that outweighs anything going on with the CO2, positive or negative. But now let's talk about what about the CO2 on its own. And my overall answer is, I don't know whether it's a net positive or net negative. So let me break down why I don't know. But I know that overall, I know that the overall process, including the energy, is a huge net positive. But I don't know even CO2 on its own. So if we're looking at CO2 on its own, we have to look at, okay, what are the plant impacts of this, or you could call it the biospheric impacts. And so on the screen, I have this uh, this image of which shows it's from the government. I think it's from NASA. Shows what are the greening versus you could say browning trends on the Earth. And you see the whole. If you can see it, almost the whole thing is green. And what it shows is a huge percentage of the world has become greener since 1982, and including places where there's no human planting of things. So it's it's almost certainly that some you know something in the non-human world changed. And the major thing that we can see is, well, we have more CO2 in the atmosphere, and that generally leads to more plant growth, as documented in all sorts of ways, and as is common sense in terms of things like people grow, uh, you know, people fill their greenhouses with three times more CO2 than exists in the normal atmosphere in order to grow plants. So that's a big one, the plant impact, so global greening, that's, that's a big one because we live so much on plants, whether we eat them directly or we eat them indirectly through uh, eating animal protein and animal fat, plants are involved in food. So there are many other things we like plants for, but in general, if the biosphere becomes more productive, and that's that's what global greening means, if it's overall more productive, that means there's just more fuel for all kinds, more naturally occurring fuel for all kinds of life. And that means that that's gonna, it's gonna take us less work to produce fuel, which means that food is lower cost. And that means we can afford either more food or higher quality food for the same amount of money, which really means the same amount of time that we're spending because money ultimately amounts to time. How much of your time does it take you to make the money that you're spending to get the value? So this is contributing to more food or better food in less time. And that is a huge, huge value, particularly for people who are poorer, who are spending very large amounts of time getting food. Now there's ocean impacts. Now, this is a harder one. So this is one we might suspect is more net negative. There's, the, there's this phenomenon people call acidification, which is not a very useful term because it's it implies, well, the ocean is becoming acidic, which is not true. If you look at the periodic table, it's becoming slightly less basic or slightly less alkaline, you can call it, but still, you know, way more, way less, you know, way more basic, way more alkaline than just standard water with nothing in it, let alone you know, rainwater. So there's small changes in the pH of water. And you know, what's what how do we assess that? It's it's you know it's hard to know because you know you might expect it's not going to do that much. And I think that's mostly what you can expect a lot because many of the marine organisms that evolved 
that, that exist. One is they're already used to fluctuations of pH just from exchange of different parts of the ocean. The ocean's not one uniform pH. So people already have to, people, <laughs> marine organisms have to be used to a range of pHs. So a slight shift in the range, you wouldn't expect to do that much. And also a lot of these organisms evolved in, in periods where the pH of the ocean was much lower, much, much less basic, much more, quote, uh, acidic. And then also if you look at the history of the planet, uh, some of the greatest increases in marine life came in eras where the amount of CO2 in the atmosphere and therefore in the ocean, or related to it being in the ocean, were much, much higher than they are today. So it's it's hard to say on its own, but then at the same time, and so the, I'll just say that it's hard to say on its own with the ocean. If you're really just looking at it from a human perspective and you're not assuming that, oh, one change is going to just lead to catastrophe everywhere. A note about the ocean that's important is there's a lot of untapped mastery potential in the ocean. And I talked about this in, in a previous Power Hour with Robert Zubrin, and he, he talks about this in his book. I think it's The Case for Space. He has a, a chapter on engineering the earth. That's a really interesting chapter. And one phenomenon he talks about is how particularly, uh, you know, a native tribe in Canada was able to, in effect, engineer part of the ocean to be far more bountiful with salmon. And, and Zubrin's broader point is there's an incredible untapped potential in the oceans and the oceans are largely dead zones and we can do certain things to change, like put certain kinds of iron in certain parts of the ocean and that can lead to dramatic increases in what he calls, uh, well, you know, in ocean life through, there's aquaculture, which is a more local form of growing more sea life, but also mariculture, which is a broader perspective. And his view is there's huge potential there, including potential to use the additional CO2 to lead to more plant growth in the ocean. So that'll absorb some of the CO2 in the ocean, but also lead to more plant growth, just like it does in the regular atmosphere, and then lead to that to feed more marine uh, animal life. So overall, it's, it's, it's hard to say, uh, but I would say if you look at plants plus ocean, there's definitely a net positive, uh, there. Now, warming is hard to say because it, now this might seem crazy, but you have to remember I'm looking at this not from an anti-impact perspective, but from a human flourishing perspective. So the, the human flourishing perspective doesn't assume that a certain CO2 level that we happen to have before fossil fuels was perfect or that certain temperatures that we happen to have were perfect. It's, it's looking at, well, what's actually good for human beings? And if you look at the kind of warming that occurs, it has a, well, in general, warming is desirable for human beings. The average temperature of the earth is pretty low in terms of what we're comfortable with. So most people want to live in warmer places. That's why they generally vacation in warmer places. So we're talking about something that's putting it in the direction that generally people want. And then if you look at by the nature of the warming that we cause or we apparently cause, it tends to have certain features. So it tends to exist closer to the poles. And that's part of why people are so bent out of shape about, you know, the Arctic ice is melting. But part of it is the warming occurs closer to the poles, which means the warming occurs in already cold areas versus the equator becoming a lot warmer, which generally people on the equator wouldn't want it to become warmer, but they might want it to become warmer in Minnesota. And that's the kind of thing that's happening. So it tends to be warming in more desirable um places and then it tends to be more in winter 
than in summer, and then it tends to be more at night than during the day. I'm going to talk about these more in Moral Case for Fossil Fuels 2.0, not to keep talking about something that you won't be able to get till next year, but those are certain kinds of dynamics that are important. So I think it's very hard to say on balance, is the warming good or not? And then the other, what are the other climate effects of the warming in terms of storms and um, you, know, you can think of it storms and floods and fires and uh, you know you could expect it to be in terms of fires net negative but but this is where it becomes really hard to say because the energy that comes with the CO2 contributes to this massive ability to deal with things like wildfires and I want to I want to emphasize that in, in a second. But even so, even on its own, if you're looking out of context, hey, are the conditions with warming overall better, overall worse? I think it's it's really hard to say. I haven't seen anything definitive one way or another, but that certainly undercuts the case that it's catastrophic. Um, I want to talk about this issue of th- that I was just mentioning with the wildfires in a second, but just just for some global really historical context in terms of should we be concerned about the trajectory of the CO2 and the warming. The temperatures throughout the history of the earth have been at different points, 25 degrees Fahrenheit warmer, and the CO2 levels have been 15 times higher. And these are enormous stretches of time. I mean, hundreds of millions of years where life on this earth flourished. So there's a lot of, in part, because of the higher CO2. So you have these periods where CO2 levels are at levels that we have no idea how to get them there. And temperatures are a level of warming that not even the catastrophists predict that we know uh, how to get. So what is this? What this means is that there's no, there's no plausibility whatsoever to the idea that the changes we're going to make could make the earth uninhabitable. Like oh, it's a fundamentally uninhabitable place. It was highly inhabitable for species that are far less versatile than, or, or far less uh, adaptable than we are. So it's really the question we should get out of the realm of uninhabitable earth and get into the realm of, is there an inconvenient rate of change? So are we causing changes that given what we've already established are going to be inconvenient? So something like a sea level rise, you could say, yeah, that would be inconvenient, but it's not an existential type thing, particularly if it, if you're talking about it's 50 years, uh, 100 years. And I think that's really important just to, just to have the idea of where we are in terms of CO2 and temperature so that we don't have this catastrophe. This this idea that, oh, well, maybe the whole earth is just getting disrupted in this unprecedented way. That's not at all happening. So you just have to see, yeah, are we, is there a rate of change and a direction of change that's going to be like mega, mega inconvenient to the point where it would be worth reducing people's ability to produce and use energy. So final thought, and this connects to the wildfires point. Uh, so what was the, the wildfires point was you could say that, yeah, in general, if it's warmer, that'll tend toward more wildfires or that slightly puts you in that direction. But at the same time, if it's warmer, it's probably going to be wetter. And so that pushes you away from it. So it's even hard to determine and stuff like that. But the main thing is with wildfires, the key with wildfires is, are we using proper forest management, including are we taking advantage of all the machine power that we have at our disposal with fossil fuels? And right now, we're having incredibly irrational forest management policies. And so that's, if you look at, say, Australia last year, that's what that's what's going on. They're essentially just loading the forests with uh, dry wood, 
because of certain policies that they're allegedly trying to reduce their impact. And that's what make that's what makes it almost a bomb ready to go off. But it's it's not that an analogy I've thought of is, you know, if your house catches on fire, you don't think, oh, it's because I turned up the thermostat one degree. You think, oh, there's something I really mismanaged in the house that put it in flames that like brought it to 451 degrees. It's not that I took it from 70 to 71 and then it, it burst into flames. And a similar thing is true with forests where, no, there's something really being mismanaged. So it could be, you know, people are deliberately lighting the fires or you're putting too much fuel together. But it's not that, oh, it just is, happens to be a degree or two uh, warmer. But this connects to this uh, broader thought I have, which is that over time, fewer changes in climate conditions are negative. So this is a point I've thought about a bunch. So think about this example that I, I like to use a lot. You might have heard me use it. But the same thunderstorm that 200 years ago could have ruined your life, could the exact same thunderstorm now could be the setting for a romantic evening. You just think about the state of shelter back then versus now, like then it could have ruined your life and now it could be the setting for a romantic evening. So the question is, is the thunderstorm bad? And if we had twice as many of those, would that be bad? Well, sort of. I mean, you can look at it from the perspective of, yeah, if we were naked and afraid and helpless, yeah, it would be bad. But really whether it's bad or not depends on the state of human ability. And the higher human ability is, the more things we can turn into good, even if they were really bad. And in the future, it might be, hey, a hurricane comes along and we can harness that for energy. So the more our ability increases, the fewer things are bad. And often you have this transition from bad to good. And this is yet another reason why the focus should be how do we preserve and expand our incredible ability as humans, our ability to produce value of any kind that we can then uh, apply to any situation, whether it's dealing with a thunderstorm or dealing with a virus. And so that's another reason to be fundamentally focused on energy because energy gives us the ability to use machines to improve our lives. And so that, that gives us more ability to produce any value that we may seek. And one more thought on this is just in terms of action, so, I mean, I think the basic action is monitor what's happening, try to learn about it, but really be looking at it from a human perspective. And so I don't, I don't think there's, people can even say that there's a net negative for CO2. Now, I should say that the moral case for fossil fuels does not depend on this evaluation of CO2. So people can believe in the moral case for fossil fuels and even believe that CO2 is a significant net negative. And I know people who believe that. I'm just saying that I can't, on, and in a sense, it would be more convenient for me if I thought increase CO2 as a net negative because it would put me more in the kind of mainstream camp. But I just honestly don't think that we know. And I think it becomes less and less of an issue as our ability increases um, over time. But it, it, I just want to make clear, the moral case for fossil fuels does not depend on CO2 being benign, let alone beneficial. It depends on fossil fuels being a huge net positive for human life. And then in terms of how, what this means for, you know, the government, I don't think the government should be in, involved. We can monitor it as a potential threat, but I think people should be free to invest in CO2 reduction. But mostly, as I said before, when it's a byproduct of a potentially more cost-effective source of energy like nuclear, that's, and, and that's one where I talk about a lot, we need to decriminalize nuclear energy.
All right, so next we have uh, our final question from Mark, and this is going to be uh, a shorter one, but just to, to recap, so we had Todd's question about why do people believe the doomsayers, and then Andrew's questions about question about what's your evaluation of CO2. And in both cases, I just want to observe, the key to answering both of those and the key differentiating my perspective from others was, was this issue of framework. Where are you starting out? What are you taking for granted? And, and you know, I'm taking for granted, I'm evaluating everything, including the state of the earth by a human flourishing standard, not by an unchanged nature standard. And I am not assuming that the earth is perfect pre-human. I'm recognizing that it's imperfect from a human flourishing perspective and recognizing it's dynamic, dangerous, deficient, and that we need to transform it dramatically, which means we need a lot of productive ability, which means we need a lot of energy, which means we need low cost energy production. Okay, Mark's question. I would like to know your thoughts about the recent Michael Moore film, Planet of the Humans. It's overwhelmingly anti-human, but it is but is also anti-green energy and critical of a lot of green advocates like McKibben, Al Gore, Sierra Club 350, etc. I watched it on YouTube and a glance at the comments showed that a lot of people found it made them depressed and hopeless, along with the very occasional pro-nuke comment. Anyway, I wonder what, if any, effect you think it might have on the climate and energy debate and whether there is a way that it might help the pro-reliable energy argument. Okay, I'm sure Mark already knows this because I think he's subscribed to the newsletter, but just so you know, I've done two episodes on this, two episodes of Power Hour on this, where you can get most of my perspective on this question, but I, I just, I'm going to cover one angle here that I haven't fully covered there. But if you just go to youtube.com slash improve the planet, you can find the Planet of the Humans videos. Obviously, if you're going a lot later in time than I'm recording this May 13th, then may not be as recent. So if you just search Alex Epstein, Planet of the Humans, they should come up and the titles are the five things Planet of the Humans gets mostly right and the five things Planet of the Humans gets totally wrong. But in terms of where there can be a positive difference, the, the thing that the movie does well is something I do think is important. And particularly in the last year, I've come to think is even more important than I thought it was before, which is demonizing, or we can think of it as de-deifying uh, green energy. So to deify is to make God-like or exalted. And you can think of it as solar and wind have a halo over them. And that is a very dangerous situation when you have a technology that people view as perfect, godlike, no flaws, supremely virtuous. It's it's hard if people they just view it as pure benefit and they're they're viewing it as outside the context of really reality, which is that things tend to have benefits and costs that you need to weigh, or I often think of it as benefits and side effects that you need to weigh. And part of what the movie does well, which I talked about in the first episode I, I did on this was, is it helps people understand that energy is a process and that puts energy into reality. So it has a lot of specific images and descriptions of the process by which, you know, sunlight-based energy, wind-based energy, um, batteries for storing and deploying energy, that those are made. And so it's really important that energy is a process. When you recognize energy as a process and when you're aware of some of the negatives of the process, that can contribute to cost benefit thinking. And that is that is a super, super valuable thing to have happen. So what I recommend is 
people people are already going to watch this. If you talk to them, you might emphasize, look, it's important that all these, every form of generating energy is a process and different processes have different benefits and side effects, and we need to be objective about them. We can't just look at the side effects of fossil fuels and nuclear and only the benefits of solar and wind. We have to be much more even-handed uh, about it. And if we do that, that's that's a that's a form of framing a conversation. Then people will be more open to hearing about what are the benefits of low-cost energy in general for human life. And then you can start to put them on the path of energy is making the world a much better place to live over time versus a worse place to live. Uh, a third aspect of this value, so it helps people understand energy is a process, it contributes to cost-benefit thinking. A third value, which is very time-sensitive, is that it helps counter an immediate threat, which is the Green New Deal. Right now, and more broadly, 100% renewable. This idea of 100% renewable polls incredibly well. It's just, and it's it's really captivated a lot of people. And it's really important that people have many negative associations with quote renewable energy because it has many negative attributes. Above all, it's not very good at producing energy. That's that's the main one. But by putting it in the category of a real industrial process, it helps people grasp everything about it, including why it would cost a lot. Because if you see it as this magical thing where we just change sunlight into electricity, uh, with it's totally clean and seems totally free. Yeah, people will think, yeah, why not do 100% renewable? But if you see it as, oh, it's this massive process of transforming this dilute and intermittent sunlight into huge amounts of reliable energy, yeah, I can see why that's super expensive and why in practice they're really just getting fossil fuels to do most of the work and really putting in solar as a, you know, as a luxury or as, as virtue signal. So th that's that's the value of it, that it's it's de-deifying uh, the or even demonizing green energy. So you can use it as a good basis, but the most important thing to do at that point is then offer a positive alternative. And this, I would suggest the moral case for fossil fuels or just more broadly, our work at the Center for Industrial Progress on energy. So refer them to industrialprogress.com, hopefully encourage them to sign up for the mailing list send them the moral case for fossil fuels, refer them to youtube.com slash improve the planet. But they really need to know that there's a pro-human perspective on this. As as you mentioned in the question mark, people are, it's, it's incredibly depressing. If you just see, oh yeah, green energy isn't as good as I think, then, and you think the whole planet's being destroyed, that is a real position for depression and and even despair. And there's no reason the people watching this, they live on the best planet that's ever existed. It's generally getting better and better. And they should know that and they should embrace what's making it better and then try to reduce anything that's negative, but really embrace that energy empowering billions of people that makes the world a better place for everyone to live. All right. So those are my three answers. I hope you enjoyed those questions. Thanks to those accelerators for asking the questions and for contributing. So if you want to ask your own accelerator question, not sure how long I'm going to keep this going for, but I, I do enjoy these questions. I have several more to answer in the coming weeks. 
But if, if you want to get yours answered soon, easiest way is uh, go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate and you can make a contribution. Uh, but whether or not you want to ask a question or not, I hope you make a contribution. If you haven't already, these contributions are tremendously helpful in terms of helping us pay for research and development efforts. It's already making the moral case for fossil fuels 2.0 uh, better. I promise it'll be worth it when it comes out. It's I've been doing a bunch of work with political candidates, helping them helping pro-energy, pro-freedom candidates with messaging. Accelerator contributions help a lot with that. I've been doing more interviews. Accelerator contributions help with that. So I, I super appreciate everyone who has supported that. Again, industrialprogress.com slash accelerate. Other resources, maybe the most important one, if you're not on our mailing list already, go to industrialprogress.com and sign up. If you want to know the full ideas about fossil fuels, best way is order the moral case for fossil fuels on Amazon. And if you're interested in any kind of speaking or media inquiry, go to industrialprogress.com slash speaking. Finally, you can find this episode on youtube.com slash improve the planet or anywhere fine podcasts are distributed. All right, that is it for this week. Next week, we'll be back with another great set of topics. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.